Why don't we begin with prayer this morning as we uh, seek out what God would have us learn. Lord, we are thankful to be here and thankful to have the freedom, as we are reminded even uh, of, uh, of our freedom in our country, to freely gather, to study your word without fear. Um, so God, I pray that we would take advantage of the opportunity this morning. That we would not simply go through the motions of being in another church service on another Sunday morning, but God, we would really, really, really want to hear from you. So God, open our hearts and open our minds, make us hungry for your word, and teach us and change us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you are much of a reader. Uh, maybe some of you like to read. Maybe you have particular interest. Some of you may read novels. Some of you may read uh, magazines or newspapers or whatever. One of the things that that I enjoy reading are are books about those in the business world and how they are successful. Now, before you start freaking out, the church is totally different than a business. Fully understand that. So I I just find it fascinating to see how people go about their business, though, in the in the world outside the church. It's just fascinating to me. Many of you in here. Uh, are either of some leadership or maybe the leader in a particular area of business. Maybe you have people who work for you. Uh, maybe you are influential in your organization. Maybe uh, you just even even in, in the classroom or uh, in your home, you have great influence, whatever it may be. And there are, there are very interesting principles that you can pull from lots and lots of books. One of the books, and, and, and here's some free information for you this morning. If you are of influence in any particular organization, one of the books that I would highly encourage you to read is a book called Good to Great by a guy named Jim Collins. Some of you probably read this, maybe heard of it. But he did research over a long period of time on what does it take for a company that's a good company, probably a household name in many areas, a good company to go from just being good to being great, to being lasting, to having a, a tremendous legacy and a, and a long-term success rate. And he did some amazing research, found lots of different things. I won't bore you with all the details this morning, but it is a great, great read. And it includes many companies who decided not to do these things, and they took a back seat. Some of what he included, obviously, was it takes a lot of hard work. Those of you that have ever led any kind of organization or led people in any way, whether it's in the home or the classroom or in a business, you know it takes tremendous hard work to make things successful. He, he writes about the intense focus that the leaders in the organization, the people that are doing the work must have. Intense focus on typically one or two things that you're trying to be the best at. He talks about that. And one of the, one of the more interesting things he discusses is the absolute need to have the right people in the right spots. You ever felt like in your work you were playing out of position? I know from, from having played sports long enough and, and pay attention to it that you can always tell when somebody's not playing their natural position. It just, it just doesn't seem to fit. Jim Collins in his book, he writes about that, and he says you've got to get the right people uh, in, you know, in the organization and put them in the right spots, and then things begin to click. He, he writes about the secrets to success in the business world. Now, this morning I'm not going to give you a business lecture. I don't know that much about business. I've read a few books, but I'm no expert by any means. But I really believe that just like in a business that wants to be successful, that lays a foundation and begins to plug away at those things, that there is a foundation that must be laid in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ in order for us 
to be successful in the Christian life. I don't think you would be here this morning. I really don't. To the very person, if I were to talk to you individually, I don't think that there's any individual here this morning who would say, well, you know what, in life, I would really just like to be a complete loser. You know, if I could choose, I would choose to fail at everything I do. I, I really don't want to be successful in life. And, and even as a Christian, I would really just soon not please God in anything I do. I, I really don't want God to be pleased with me. In fact, I'd rather just incur His wrath all the time. That, that's what I want. from Nobody in here, in their right mind, would say those things. I would, I would guarantee you that it may not be your exact wording, but every person in here would say, you know what? In my Christian life, I really want to be successful. I really want to do what God wants me to do. And I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know where that means I'll go and what I'll do, but I really just want to, to live for the Lord in, in, in the way that He wants me to, to be, quote-unquote, successful in the Christian life. Maybe you've tried different things, because I really believe that we have many people, probably even here today, who though they say they want to be successful in the Christian life, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe you've tried lots of different things. You, you've gone to church, and then you've not gone to church. Well, well maybe it was the church's fault. I just, maybe I won't go for a while. And we just, you know, maybe you've gone to church, you've tried that, and, you've not, and maybe you've gone to lots of different churches. Well, you try this one, and then you go to this one, and well, they've got this, and well, the other church has this, well, they believe this, and you just try lots of different things. Or maybe, maybe you've tried to, to follow all the rules that you think are there, and so you're going to do everything just exactly the way that whomever it is says you should do it. And you just follow all those rules, and yet it's still just, well, is that it? Or maybe you, you, you watch uh, a TV preacher. Be careful with the TV preachers. But maybe you watch a TV preacher, and you, you say, well, well, if I just could follow what he says. You're just trying everything you can. Or maybe you've read books. Or maybe you've read the Scripture. You tried praying all sorts of different prayers. You've tried all sorts of different prayer positions. You stand up, you kneel down, you lay on your face, you try standing on your head, whatever it's going to take to get God to do something, to have a successful Christian life. Maybe you've tried all of it, but maybe there's something that still is, is missing. Maybe you just think, I, I don't feel like it's really happening for me. And maybe like those businesses that Jim Collins writes about in his book, you want your Christian life to go from good to great. You really want to see God live through you in the way that you see the people in the Scripture experiencing Him. And you don't want just to be mediocre anymore. You really want it to be real. You want your Christian life to be great. I'm thankful, as we'll see this morning, that God doesn't make us guess about what that foundation should be. He doesn't make us guess about what the secret to success is in the Christian life. He makes it very clear through, in, in the Bible through his, both His commands that He tells us and through some lives uh, and examples that He gives us. I want you to do this. Turn in your Bible to the book of John over in the New Testament. Just go to chapter 1 and hold your place. And then once you get to the book of John, hold your place there and then turn back to Luke chapter 7. Now I'm going to catch up to speed very quickly on where we were two weeks ago. We're looking at John the Baptist, seeing what in his life we can learn and what we can apply from his life. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that John the Baptist had some doubts in his life. A firm believer in Jesus Christ who experienced a moment of doubt where he wondered, is this really what Jesus says it is? 
Now, I want you to look in John, uh, rather Luke chapter 7, and I want you to look very quickly at one verse in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus here is speaking of John the Baptist, and he says this about him. I tell you, among those born of women, that's all humans, no one is greater than John. Now stop there. Jesus, Jesus has these words to say about John the Baptist, his cousin, the forerunner for the Messiah, the one who was announcing the presence of Jesus Christ. Nobody who's ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. Now, I realize that we've got some folks here who believe that about themselves. Now, no one who's ever been born is greater than me, you might think in your own mind. Maybe you've thought that, maybe I've thought that, but Jesus said it about John. Imagine that sort of compliment coming from Jesus Christ himself, that there's nobody any greater than John. Now, he goes on to say, obviously, that just because John has great human stature, it doesn't afford him anything in heaven because he still has to come through Jesus Christ for salvation. But imagine the great compliment that John receives. So we're talking about someone this morning who Jesus was fairly impressed with, who, who sort of got it, we would say, in life. He understood what life was to be about to the point that Jesus said, look at John. You want to know what you ought to be like, you look at John. Nobody's been greater than him. And yet we realize at the same time, as we saw last week in the preceding verses, that John was human. There wasn't anything divine about John. He was just a man, just a human like all of us are. He struggled with his doubts. He had his moments of frustration. He had his moments of sin. And yet Jesus said, there's an example you can follow. This morning I want us to look in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 of, of John the Baptist's example that we should follow. If Jesus says, here's a guy to look at, well, we ought to pay attention. We're going to see here an episode where John the Baptist, who has had this incredible ministry, is going to fade from the scene. Now the Bible actually doesn't speak a whole lot about John the Baptist. You see the Gospel of John, you think, well, I guess he wrote that. Actually, it's a different guy. It's the Apostle John, one of the twelve disciples, that wrote the, the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation in the Bible. John the Baptist was not one of the twelve disciples. He was not an author of any of the books in Scripture, and yet he's a very important figure. He's had this incredible ministry up until the point where we'll pick it up. I want you to look with me in verse 19 of John chapter 1. <clears throat> this is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? John is about to, to tell them uh, and answer their questions. He, they, they send a contingency to ask, who are you? Now you have to understand that John at this point has gained some popularity. He, he's not some random guy that nobody's ever heard of. He's built quite a following. In fact, as we'll see, he has his own disciples, people who are following him around. So the, 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 the Levites, the priests, the Jewish leaders want to know, who is this guy? Who is he claiming to be? Now John, in verse 20, he did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. Now that's not what they asked him. They said, who are you? Well, he answers with who he's not. Now, during this time in Jewish history, there's extreme fanaticism, I suppose, about when is the Messiah coming? And, and there was supposed to be some certain things that would take place. So John knew. He's anticipating why they're asking. They're wanting to know, really, is this the Messiah? John was doing some incredible things, seemingly what the Messiah might do. Is he the Messiah? John, 
preempts them. He cuts them off of the past. They say, who are you? He says, well, I'm not the Messiah. I'll tell you that much. You just stop right where you are. I am not the Messiah. Don't, don't, don't be elevating me to that position. It's interesting that John would do that. So at first he says, I am not the Messiah. Look at verse 21. What then? They ask him, are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was to be a figure that was predicted back in Malachi. Uh, there was a figure that, that was the Old Testament called Elijah. Now, if you remember, uh, we, we studied weeks ago that Elijah himself did not die, but was caught up in a whirlwind, went to heaven uh, without dying. Uh, and, and so what was predicted in Malachi was that Elijah would return to proclaim the Messiah's appearance. A lot of people thought it would literally be Elijah coming back because he didn't die. So they come to John and they say, well, okay, if you're not the Messiah, then are you Elijah? And I am not, he said in verse 21. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy, it was predicted that a prophet like Moses would come at the end times. Sort of the messianic age would be ushered in and Elijah would appear and the Messiah would appear and then this prophet like Moses would be on the scene. So you can see their line of questioning. They're thinking, wow, we, something big is going on here. Let's find out who this guy is. No, he answered, verse 21. Who are you? Then? Imagine this. Who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer. To those who sent us, what can you tell us about yourself? If not those guys, they say, John, who are you? I think John here shows us that he understands and gives us some instruction through his life and his words. That he understands the secret to the Christian life. And he lays down the first element in this foundation. And it's this, you'll see on the back of your bulletin. Know who you are not. Know who you are not. You might say, well, what does that even mean? (laughs) John has a clear understanding of who he is not. He is not the Messiah. He is not Elijah. He is not the prophet. Though he fulfills the role that was predicted for Elijah and has an important place in Christian history, he understands clearly who he is not. He refused to believe that life revolved around him in any way. And if you think of our world today, it teaches the exact opposite. I mentioned that I had the opportunity to do a wedding yesterday, and it was in Madisonville, and I stayed in a hotel on Friday night, stayed at the Hampton Inn. And, and they have this little rewards program, apparently, and you get a card, and I guess you cash in after a while, and you get free nights to stay there or something like that. I don't go to hotels enough to even worry about it, but it was interesting, and what caught my eye was what's written on the front. I know you can't see it, so I'll read it to you. It says, Welcome to a world that revolves around you. That's the first thing I saw when I went to that hotel. Welcome to a world that, will, that revolves around you. And I just thought, really? It's everywhere. It's in the hotel rewards program. A better way to travel, they say, unparalleled choice. Now, you think about this. Here's our world. You think our world doesn't revolve around you. Watch commercials. Unparalleled choice. Instant privileges. Earn rewards fast. All you ever wanted through the rewards program at Hampton Inn. Right there. Welcome to a world that revolves around you. Now, if you work for Hampton Inn, it's a great place to stay. Enjoy the breakfast. All right? I don't mean to be disparaging as Hampton Inn, a nice place. But isn't it interesting how subtle but pervasive this line of thinking really is? 
John had the opportunity in those moments to say, well, you know, I might not be the Messiah, but, you know, I'll just kind of let them think what they want. Ah, well, they, they think I might be Elijah, you know, well, what's the harm in letting them play along a little bit? Or, you know, I am pretty important. Maybe I should have some sort of title like the prophet. Maybe that could be it. Our world teaches that it revolves around you. What's interesting is that if it revolves around each one of us individually, that would sort of render it impossible. It, it, you would think it could only revolve around one person at a time, but somehow we believe the lies and we buy all the stuff. But I read a New York Times article this week that, that highlighted this as well, talking about college graduates and how graduation speeches today are meant to tell students to go and find your own path, discover yourself, dream your dreams, follow your heart. It's everywhere. This mentality that the world revolves around us is everywhere. And, and it's interesting as we see it even in what is taught to our children. Children grow up in a world that teaches them how great they are, that they've never failed at anything, that no matter if they swing and miss a hundred times, that somehow they didn't strike out. I don't Mistake me for a hardcore baseball coach, but isn't it interesting how failure is never even brought up? How it doesn't matter what you do, that you're okay because you made your own path. Our children are taught that self-esteem is all that matters, and we sure don't want to shatter their precious self-esteem. Now get through my sarcasm for just a second, but I can't find teaching on self-esteem anywhere in the Bible. Self-worth? Absolutely. Declared self-worth because we are a creation of God made in His image? Absolutely. But, but self-esteem? Instead, what I find is self-denial. <laughs> I, I find that self-esteem leads to self-deception. It leads to self-indulgence. It leads to self-righteousness. All things that God hates. Thinking highly of myself is counter to what the Bible has to say because Jesus himself said, if you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself. Isn't it interesting that the, the Bible is so countercultural? John, I think, knew this. And he came face to face with the fact he had to know who he was not. Now, if we refuse to follow his example, if we make life about us, there are some very disastrous results. And they're not hard to see. Things like the fact that we focus on the temporal, what's happening now, rather than understanding this world is not our home. We can build a kingdom here, but it will one day burn up. It's going to be gone. If any of the people who are across the street in the cemetery could speak to us today, they would say, Live for eternity, not for now. Because why? They're experiencing eternity. And it will last infinitely longer than our life on earth. If we think life revolves around us, we're going to focus on the here and now. Period. We'll never prepare for eternity because this, we'll believe, is all there is. We'll easily, I think, become control freaks. You know anybody like that? Listen, I have those tendencies. I think everybody does. Now, some of you are laughing at people. Now, don't elbow. Now, I'm going to bring this stuff up to cause problems in the family. All right? Now, come on. But we're going to make sure that everything is done our way because I'm right. And the world revolves around me. We're going to protect our interests at all costs. And it might make us greedy and paranoid in the process. You've been there? 
we'll likely become rude and self-serving, tending to operate even with some unethical behavior to make sure the tables are turned in our favor. But eventually, we're going to be left empty and probably anxious, maybe even depressed, because our search for meaning and for ultimate purpose, if we search it for only what we can find here on earth, we'll never find it. We'll never bear the fruit of the Spirit by thinking that life revolves around us, and ultimately we'll be fools in the eyes of God. We'll gain the whole world, and we'll forfeit our very souls. John's life is a call really to true humility, to see ourselves as God sees us, in need of a Savior, in need of His love, in need of His grace. Apart from Him, we are nothing. That's what the Bible calls us to see ourselves as. To think highly of others, to put others first. To receive our worth from Jesus Christ alone, to give preference to other people. John teaches us here to know who we are not. But it's also clear that he knew who he was. Look at verse 23. He said, after they asked him, well, who are you? I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or prophet? What's your justification? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. John didn't have a false sense of humility or a false sense of who he was. He understood who he was not, but he also understood who he was. He had a role to play in the plan of God. He said, I'm just a voice. He's the word. I'm just the voice. I'm just a preview. Yes, my role may be important, but I am not to be the center of attention. Our worth does not come based upon our skill, our titles, our positions, our ability, our education, our intellect, or anything but what Jesus Christ says about us. And he says we are someone that he died for. That's where our worth comes from. We have worth not because of any other reason than God declares we have worth by creating us in His own image and by sending His Son Jesus to die for us. And you might think, well, I guess that's not much. (laughs) That's far more important than how smart you are or what you look like or what you're good at. It's a great lesson, I believe, for parents, for leaders, for coaches, for teachers, for churches, that we are to teach people, particularly young people, who they are not so that they can become who God wants them to be. Because if they're so focused on who they are, they'll never see who God really wants them to be. So the secret to the Christian life includes understanding who you're not, but it doesn't stop there. There's a second element. We must know who Jesus is. Certainly know who we are not, but we also must know who Jesus is. In verse 29 of John chapter 1, it says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God, John says. It's not clear if John knew all of the implications of this when he proclaimed Jesus the Lamb of God, but we certainly know the fulfillment of this is that Jesus, as the sacrificial Lamb to pay for the sins of the world, died in our place as a substitute for us, and it's His death and His death alone that pays for our sins. Not our goodness, not our giving, not the things that we can do, but His death and His death alone, His blood shed on the cross, that alone can atone for our sins. John says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Certainly, 
Jesus died in our place as a substitute. Sin had a cost, must be paid for. God required a perfect sacrifice. One perfect person has lived in the history of the world, rendering Him the only one worthy to die in our place, and He did it. Through Jesus alone can our sins be forgiven. John declares that, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then look at verse 30. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. Jesus, not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is eternal. He didn't just become somebody at His birth. He already was somebody and simply was incarnated, became a man, though He was eternal, though He was God. He always existed with the Father, always existed with the Spirit. He's not merely a man, though He was fully human. He was both God and man. John hinting toward that. Look at verse 31. I didn't know him, but he came, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Here's John's statement. I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. No mere man, not just a good teacher. Not just a good example, not just a prophet with some fancy words, not just a person that people were drawn to because he gave them some hope in life. The very Son of God, John declares, that's who Jesus is. He is God come down from heaven to live among us, to share our world, to bridge the gap between God and man that was created by sin. So anyone who would render Jesus as just a good teacher is not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. Anyone who would render Jesus as just a good man, a a good example to follow, misses entirely what is said about Him and said by Him, that He is preexistent. He always was. He is the Son of God. He is God come down to earth in human flesh. We've got to know who Jesus is. The Gospel of John goes on to record several things that Jesus said about Himself. And if you want to turn with me, we'll just kind of flip to the right Or you can write down these references and we'll do them very quickly. In John 6, 35, Jesus himself says this, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am, he says, the bread of life. You want to be filled? Come to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, it says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You want to know why you're here? Follow Jesus Christ. He will show you, because He is the light of the world. Is there darkness in your soul? Are you bound up by sin? Come to Jesus Christ. He'll light it up and rid you of all that darkness. In John chapter 10, verse 7, excuse me, He says, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. And then look again, uh, keep, keep going in verse 8. All who came uh, before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and out and will find pasture. There is but one way for salvation, and it is through the door of Jesus Christ. He claims to be the door. And then in, in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23 is a famous psalm, and it talks about what a great shepherd does. 
study that in light of the fact that that's who Jesus is for each one of us. The good shepherd laying down his life even for the sheep. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus, in response to a question from Martha, the brother of Lazarus, who believes, yes, that one day we'll all rise again, certainly Lazarus, who has died, will come back to life in the resurrection, Jesus replies in verse 25 of chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Jesus says, certainly, yeah, one day everybody's going to rise, but guess who the resurrection is? He said, it's me. I am, he says, the resurrection and the life. Anyone who dies will live again if they believe in me. Then John 14, verse 6, Jesus, in response to a question from Thomas, Wondering, Lord, how do we get to where you're going? You say you're going to prepare a place for us. We don't know how to get there. Give us the road map. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see him defining himself? I am the way. You want to know how to get to God? You want to know how to have eternal life? He says, I am the way. Jesus is the way, the only way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to God except through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 15, verse 5. He gives an example, teaching them sort of in a, in a parable, using an illustration, a visual illustration. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, but you can do nothing without me. He is the vine. He is our source of life. He is the very reason we exist, and apart from him, we can do nothing. We have to understand who Jesus is. We sort of see the picture coming into focus here. We understand who we are not. We understand who Jesus is. I am not, but He is. And as a result of that, let me give you the the, the imperative for the day. It might offend you. You might not like it. It offended me this week, just to let you know. But here it is. Because I know who I am not, because I know who He is, the imperative is get out of His way. And I mean that in the tone that I put it to myself and to us. Get out of his way. Man, I've told myself that so many times this week and in the past month. Get out of God's way. In John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. He reiterates it. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. John had disciples. He's a pretty important guy. He announces Jesus is on the scene. He loses it all. His following is gone. He gives up his disciples. But there's no fight on John's part. There's no, now, hold on, guys. Now, you know, yeah, Jesus is great, but, you know, we've got an organization to run over here. You know, John the Baptist Incorporated is not going to be the same if I don't have anybody else with me. Never even a hint of that. John willingly says, I'm getting out of his way. You guys need to go follow him. I'm not interested in building a kingdom for me. He's the real king. You go follow him and be a part of his kingdom. And then flip over to chapter 3, and we'll see the conclusion of John's introduction of Jesus here. Verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. 
After this, the conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus, where we obviously have the famous John 3.16, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown in the prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. Now, it doesn't seem, as we move on in this particular passage, that the real root of all of this is about some purification. We kind of get the idea here. Look what, look what they say to him. So they, John's disciples, come to him and said, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. Okay, big deal. And everyone is flocking to him. You see the root cause here? John's disciples are saying, Now, John, now um, we had a little dispute, but... But we just wanted to pass it along to you that, you know that guy, Jesus, that you, you were together with and you baptized him, whatever? Well, he's baptizing now as well. And he's building a following and everyone is flocking to him. Here's a moment of truth for John. The moment of truth is, is right here before him. What will he say to his disciples who sort of feel offended by the fact that Jesus is now building a bigger following than their guy? than the one they've devoted their lives to follow and to learn from. What's John going to do? He says in verse 27, John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He says, Look, guys, I'm going to do what God wants me to do for as long as he wants me to do it, and then I'm done. If God gives me a ministry, I'll, I'll do it for as long as he wants me to do it. I, I can't do anything that isn't given to me from heaven. I, I'm here, I'm, I serve at God's pleasure for as long as he wants me to serve, and I'm moving off the scene. He says in verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. Guys, my role is just to be the announcer. I'm not him. I'm moving off the scene. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. John says, I'm sort of like the best man at the wedding. I'm just the guy who's to get it all ready for the groom to enter and take his bride. I'm just the guy that at the reception, I sort of announce, hey, here's the bride and groom. And then I step out of the way. And, and the groom, as he takes his bride, is the center of attention. You see John saying, you know what? I know who I am not. I know who he is. And as a result of those two things going together, I'm getting out of his way. Verse 30. He must increase but I must decrease. Those words there, increase and decrease, have some interesting meanings. To increase means that, that someone will grow in status, grow in respect and importance and power and honor and position. John is saying, look, Jesus is the one who must. He absolutely must. You don't get it. He has to increase in status and respect and importance because of who He is. And he says, because of who I am not, I must decrease. I've got to diminish. I've got to fade. I have to have less authority, less status. With Jesus on the scene, John quickly gets out of the way. And we must do the same. He must increase in our lives. We must adopt his attitudes, his thoughts, his behaviors, his purposes, his methods, his priorities, whatever stature, whatever ambitions, whatever purposes, goals, qualities, abilities, 
giftings, authority that you and I have absolutely must be leveraged for the glory of Christ and for His glory alone. It absolutely must be that way. So as you take a quick inventory of your life, what does it look like right now? Do you truly want to live life as God has intended? Do you want to be successful in the Christian life? To please God, that is true success. Do you want to be successful in your walk with Him? Do you want to see your devotion for Him go from good to great, from mediocre to outstanding? It's simple, but I'll tell you, it's not easy. You've got to know who you are not. You've got to know who He is and get out of His way. Now that means that we accept that we serve at God's pleasure, even when we're overlooked, even when we're underappreciated, even when nobody likes us for doing it. We serve at God's pleasure. No matter what you want me to do, God, for as long as you want me to do it, you got it. I serve at His pleasure. That means you find joy in serving the Lord, not in getting recognition for what you've done. That's a hard one. <laughs> that means you find joy only in serving the Lord, not in the title that comes with what you are doing. Or the job description or the name tag that you get that says your title on, you know, those are fun, aren't they? Name tags that announce who you are. Come on, let's be real this morning. Everybody likes a name tag. It tells people ahead of time, look at me, look what I can do. That means that we display genuine humility, calling attention not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ alone. It means we recognize that none of us, not me, not you, none of us in here today are indispensable. Not a single one of us. I read a quote this, this week that said, cemeteries are full of indispensable people. <laughs> Isn't it true? None of us are indispensable. We all have great value because the Lord has declared it, but none of us are indispensable. Our lives, our jobs, our families, even our church does not revolve around us. That means we refuse to be controlling and require that everything and everyone please us. <laughs> that means that we practice self-denial as Jesus commanded, fighting the urge to make much of ourselves, and instead we give all we can to make much of Jesus Christ. Obviously what we apply to our lives as individuals must also apply to us as a church body. And so as we make much of Him, as we decrease so that He will increase, that means that even in our church, that any decisions we make, anything we do, is not based just on some personal preference. But it's based and it's built on the principles and the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone. What will bring Him fame and glory, what will fulfill His mission to reach the lost, that's our filter as a church for making decisions. Anything less than that is far from what God would have us do. Won't you bow your head with me as we close our time this morning? As you focus in for just a second, reflecting on the scripture that you've heard, what have you learned this morning? What is it that God has shown you that maybe you overlooked before or maybe you'd never heard? What have you learned? How, is, how has the scripture confronted you today? Has it smacked you in the head at all? <laughs> it sure did me this week. Has it, has it awakened you in some area to say, wow, I, 
I really need to apply God's truth to that area of my life. How has the scripture confronted you this morning? What in your life needs to be submitted to God's authority? What is it? How have you been been guided to live differently as a result of the scripture we've seen this morning? What is God calling you to do as a result of what you've heard? Is it to give your life to Him? Is it to submit to Him in a particular area that you're struggling with? It seems to have control over you. Has He confronted you with the fact that though you wouldn't want to admit it publicly, that you have made your life all about you? That you believe that there is a world that somehow revolves around you and you say, Lord Jesus, I must decrease. You must increase. What does your prayer to the Lord need to be today? Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us, for confronting us, for correcting us, for guiding us, for training us, for equipping us for life as believers in Jesus Christ. God, we pray for those who today are far from you, who are dead in their sin, that they be awakened this morning to new life in Christ. Lord, as individuals and as a church, may we not believe the societal lies that life and church and all that we are a part of somehow is to revolve around us. But God, may we decrease so that you may increase. We pray, Lord, that you would make yourself look really good in the midst of Elm Grove Baptist Church. We pray this in Jesus' name.